welcome to Filling in the Blanks. I'm Jeff. And I'm Zach. And we're just a couple of history dorks who like to tell cool stories. So today we come to you with two wildly divergent topics. Uh, The first parts of the history of privateering. And of the labor movement of the United States. Sort of. (laughs) So without further ado, we're going to jump right in. Um, And today I'm going to be talking a little bit just about the background of privateering in the United States, um, really more so before the United States was a thing, but um, in in the area surrounding the United States, um, in the uh, eastern... Uh, uh, eastern uh, West uh, Indies. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so The Lesser Antilles? Of course, of course, of course, of course. So, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Goonies, the Pirates of Penzance, Treasure Island... They're all glorious tales of piracy, treasure, and adventure. Um, I can still vividly remember watching The Goonies at my grandparents' house and being dazzled by the golden gems aboard One-Eyed Willie's ships. The booby traps, treasure maps, and epic proportions of the pirate ship and treasure captured my imagination early on. So while I never really spent much time studying pirates in depth, I have always been fascinated with them and knew exactly what I wanted my first research topic to be once I finished grad school. With movies like these, our common fascination with pirates stretches across popular media and presents stories of theft, love, freedom, and epic battles. Romanticized out the wazoo, these stories present a narrative of piracy that omits the everyday difficulties of those aboard the ships and their victims, as well as the intricacies that separate pirates from privateers. It wasn't until high school or college that I learned the difference between piracy and privateering and have always been interested to learn further what the differences were. So for my portion of our first series, I am focusing on perhaps the less widely known and understood aspects of privateering in and around the Americas. So for as long as humans could sail the seas, piracy has existed. It certainly was not a new phenomenon when it developed in the Atlantic and Caribbean during the 17th century. Piracy in the Caribbean and Eastern Atlantic reached its golden age between the early 1680s and approximately 1726. And the word pirate originates from the Greek word piratas and Latin word pirata, both of which broadly mean to attempt, attack, and assault. <laughs> uh, yes, I know it's very funny. I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Pro tip, don't breathe your wine. Yes, we, we we do have some wine, full disclosure, as a, a celebration Jesus. of our first episode. <laughs> Ow. Okay. You good? Um, you all right? Yeah, sorry to interrupt. It's um. all right. Yeah, so I'll just go back a little bit here. Um, the, the word pirate originates from the Greek word piratas um, and the Latin word pirata, which both broadly mean to attempt, attack, or assault. Essentially, pirates were and are people who steal at sea. Pretty simple. Straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, The line between piracy and privateering, then, was incredibly thin. The actions performed by both were essentially the same, and really only differed if one was licensed through either a privateering commission or letter of mark, which I did not realize are not the same thing. I did not either. Yeah, they are not the same thing. So both of these documents could be used to legalize actions that would otherwise be considered piracy. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) privateering commissions were issued to private vessels who were authorized to fight in place of or alongside other naval vessels, essentially Mm -hmm. acting as mercenaries of the sea. 
hmm. while letters of mark were granted to merchant vessels and allowed them to arm themselves and attack ships that sailed for foreign nations, regardless of whether the nations were at peace or war. What? Mm-hmm. So many nations issued privateering commissions in place of hiring professional navies, um, including people such as George Washington during the American Revolution. Oh, cool. Yes. So, um, again, so privacy, uh, sorry, privateering commissions, again, were issued to private vessels, while letters of mark were granted to merchant vessels. Okay. And privateering commissions were more so um, essentially like hiring mercenaries. Right. While letters of mark were just like, <laughs> go out and, you know, try not to start a war. Raid, pillage, plunder, and we'll let you. That's insane. Yep. So, again, the line between piracy and privateering was thin, and it also changed depending on whose point of view you look at it from. Um, in many instances, the line is pretty much indetectable. Um, one man's privateer is another man's pirate. So, for example, if the English issued letters of mark to a merchant vessel and they attacked a French vessel, the French wouldn't care that their attackers had letters of mark, and they would still view that ship as a pirate. Mm. So there are really, as I'm, I'm finding through this, a lot of people who we consider famous pirates who were privateers hmm. and even famous explorers, as we'll find out soon, who were privateers. Okay. Yes. So <clears throat> privateering itself is as old as piracy and stretches back much further than the 17th and 18th centuries in the Americas. Privateering in the Americas specifically grew more common after the Spanish conquest of much of South and Central America when they started exporting large amounts of gold and silver to Europe. Wow. Oh, coincidence. Yeah. I think not. So, the Spanish used brutal means to conquer large civilizations like the Inca and Aztecs, as well as other small civilizations throughout the continents. And these conquests led to the Treaty of Tordesillas between Spain and Portugal in 1494. And this treaty essentially granted Spain a claim over all lands west of an arbitrary demarcation line drawn by <laughs> Pope Alexander I. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, just all take yours. all this. It's all yours. <laughs> so this treaty enraged other European nations <laughs> with claims in the Americas because other nations already had claims in the Americas. And suddenly the Pope is like, well, that's all Spain's. <laughs> so in addition to any already existing conflicts, a lot of those nations launched privateers to help steal from and plunder Spanish ships. Um, and two of the most successful English privateers were Sir Francis Drake and Henry Morgan. Oh, Captain Morgan. Yes. So, Sir Francis Drake is most widely known for being the second person to circumnavigate the globe. Um, less known, though, is the fact that this voyage was a privateering mission driven by a desire for money and not a glory mission. Oh, my God. So, Queen Elizabeth I, or the Virgin Queen issued orders to Drake to sail and plunder Spanish possessions in the Pacific Ocean. During his voyage, Drake plundered numerous Spanish ships and returned to Plymouth in England on September 26, 1580, as a hero to his fellow countrymen. The Spanish crown, however, labeled Drake a pirate. And Drake, <laughs> Drake though, was knighted on April 4, 1581 for his success on his voyage around the world. However... Queen Elizabeth did not knight him himself, 
herself to avoid it appearing as though the English clown officially condoned Drake's, Drake's actions in the Pacific, even though it did, even though it <laughs> issued him the letters of Mark. The queen was like, I'm not going to knight him because I don't want it to look like I support this, Wait, even though I really do. So was it like a lesser lord who knighted him? Um, instead, the French ambassador performed the knighting. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So great things, great things. So Henry Morgan also gained fame and prestige among English citizens for his attack on Spanish possessions. Morgan received his letter of mark from the island of Jamaica. Hmm. The governor on the island felt that the English crown was doing too little to help protect it from Spanish attacks and hired Morgan and others to help protect the island. Hmm. Morgan set out on his own and used his letter of mark to justify sacking and raiding Panama City, Panama, leaving a trail of blood in his wake. This attack brought him much fame in Jamaica for successfully attacking and looting Spanish holdings. Issues arose, however, because, unbeknownst to Morgan, the English and Spanish had reached a peace agreement before his raid, and the king of Spain was demanding Morgan be tried as a pirate and punished. The king of England had both Morgan and the governor of Jamaica arrested, but eventually released both of them. Oh my god. <laughs> Morgan was then actually appointed governor of Jamaica after his release. It does seem, though... <laughs> Damn. That, that he decided to leave his life of pillaging and plundering behind him. And he actually did work really hard to try and end piracy on and around the island. A difficult task, seeing how popular the city of Port Royal was as a pirate haven. Mm -hmm. So Drake and Morgan were hardly the only English privateering threats to Spanish America. When the Jamestown colony was established, the Spanish feared that it would become yet another haven for pirates and privateers. The Spanish king sent a spy to the colony in order to have advanced knowledge of any pirates or English privateers operating out of it, but the spy was captured by the colonists. Ultimately, oh my God. ultimately, um, Jamestown sa uh, suffered and um, really struggled to establish itself firmly in its early months and years and had little to offer in term of a haven for pirates. So those fears were, were unfounded, but hmm. the Spanish were really, they're like, these English are out to get us. And I they, love that. They were infiltrating Jamestown. Um, and the interesting thing, another interesting thing rather, is that even within each European nation, the status of privateering fluctuated. So while Queen Elizabeth I was approving of privateers and hired them herself, her successor, King James I, viewed privateers as indistinguishable from pirates and outlawed the practice altogether. In some in instances, the status of the legality of privateering was questionable from the start of the voyage. In 1619, Captain Daniel Elfrith set sail on the Treasurer with a privateering commission purchased by the Earl of Warwick from the Duke of Savoy to plunder Spanish ships in the Caribbean. Elfrith joined forces with a crew of a Dutch vessel, the White Lion, and plundered a Portuguese slaver and commandeered his cargo of 20 enslaved Africans. The ultimate fate of these enslaved people is not entirely certain, but it is likely um, but it is likely that some remained in slavery and may have been among the first African slaves to arrive in North America. Mm. Not so great. Mm. So since peace had been reached over a decade earlier, 
the governor of Virginia, where Elfrith had sailed from, declared Elfrith's actions in the Caribbean piracy. Hmm. Um, so privateering's use as additional military force during times of war continued well into the 18th century during the various wars between England, France, and Spain. In fact, privateering became an essential part of especially the British economic warfare against its enemies. So while the French and Spanish did also have privateers involved in their wars, it seems that British and American privateers were the most effective at creating economic issues for their enemies. Hmm. Um, the War of Jenkins' Ear and King George's War, both spanning from 1730... <laughs> yeah, yeah. War of Jenkins' Ear. Um, both of those wars spanning from 1739 to 1748 were prime times for privateering in the Americas. Colonial and uh, governors were encouraging privateering and citizens of the colonies joined willfully in search of wealth and glory. British and American privateering from the colonies was most prominent during this period out of New York and Newport. While other major ports such as Philadelphia, Boston, and Charlestown did see privateers, certain conditions made those ports less viable as hubs for privateering. It is thought that peace-loving Quakers in Philadelphia discouraged the practice, um, Boston was gouged of manpower by the British Navy, and Charlestown saw merchant vessels mostly owned by people who didn't live in the city, and a large portion of the city's workforce were enslaved. New York and Newport, on the other hand, had large numbers of vessels and mariners, and the fact that the two ports were not as prominent in international trade at this time may have led many merchants to choose the path of privateering in order to make a profit. Hmm. So those other ports were a lot more common and a lot more popular that at this time New York and Newport were not. So hmm. it was a lot easier for privateers, or it was more economically beneficial for individual merchants to become privateers if they lived in those cities. Oh my god. They were going to make more money that way. So, that's insane. Privateering from the British colonies picked up significantly when France joined the war between Britain and Spain and King George II authorized privateering against French vessels in 1739. So another switch <laughs> that now now it's it's legal again in, in the English Empire. So the effect on Sprint, uh, French and Spanish commerce as a result of English and American privateers was significant. Commerce between France and its colonies in the West Indies suffered a nearly 50% decline, Woof. while its commerce between New France and the West Indies, uh, New France being like Quebec, Canada, dropped by around 39%. Spain suffered similar declines, and the king opted to authorize individual merchant vessels to conduct trade rather than the larger trade flotillas that it tended to launch, mm. because the trade flotillas were too easy to intercept. Oh, my God. So they were going after the entire treasure fleet? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, literally. <laughs> literally. And so the, the king of Spain started sending individual merchants instead of these large flotillas. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hope was that these unscheduled individual ships would be able to more effectively evade privateers, but nearly 60% of them were still intercepted on their way to the Americas. Mm. So American and English privateering also had a significant impact on marine insurance premiums. Most rates... <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. What a boring thing, but... But really interesting also. Yep. So most rates in peacetime were around 3 or 4% but they rose to 34.5% in Cadiz and anywhere up to 40% in most of French cities. Oh, my God. 
a huge, huge increase. So the Americans and English were, uh, uh, however, the Americans and English were not immune to the negative effects of privateering. Um, British commerce also declined after 1741 and did not return to its normal levels until peace was declared. But it does appear that the economic impact of privateering was greater on the French and the Spanish. Mm. So privateering proved to be a really important economic and military asset in many instances in the colonial period and is part of the early American Republic. The legality of privateering varied significantly depending on the time period and depending on the perspective of different countries. And clearly, though, privateering provided a pathway to riches and glory for many sailors, including some of those who we consider to be important explorers in the age of exploration. <laughs> so this form of legalized criminality was important, um, and it helped the growth of many early port cities, um, such as New York, and allowed for economic advantages during times of war. That's amazing. Can I do a follow-up question? Are we doing oh, those? Uh, yeah, for, for sure. sure. Go for it. Um, do you have any idea why different monarchs would kind of switch back and forth between authorizing privateering and not? Because it seems like it would be strategically con like sound and convenient to just say, yeah, it kind of sucks, but necessary evil. We're keeping the Spanish in check, you know? So in all of my reading, there wasn't anything that specifically said um, why it was so varied. My guess would be, if I, if I had to make an educated guess, that it would partially depend on um, the status of war. Right. That if it was a right. peacetime and you wanted to keep the peace, it wasn't quite good for keeping the peace. If you had <laughs> you know, privateers running around attacking the other nation's Merchant vessels, vessels. Like, yep, not fair. good for keeping the peace. Um, additionally, during peace times, it wouldn't be good for economics. That mm. is, like, even though these countries were still independent of one another, like, the global economy has always relied on everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, like, while, yes, like I said, the, the privateering affected the, the French and the Spanish a lot more. Mm -hmm. It's like... In a roundabout way, it would have still affected the English one way or another because now all of those supplies were cut off. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, in a way. But, yeah. So that would be my guess is is it, it probably had a lot to do with peacetime and maybe even just different um, – it could have even had to do with different levels of, like, piety. That could be. Cool. Well, thank you. One other follow-up question. Where do TJ and the Barbary states factor oh in? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's an old joke between us. It's a very <laughs> dumb joke. It is, but I actually have a book about it. Nice. That I'm planning to read, maybe. Maybe for the next part of your series. We'll see. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. That was dope. Okay. Hello, hello. This is a post-production Zach coming to you with a pre-my segment uh, little addendum. Um, I realized after the fact that I didn't do a nice little introduction like Jeff did, and I kind of thought that that would be helpful and useful, um, or at least maybe interesting. I don't know. Um, so I've always known vaguely about the labor movement. Um, of course, I think most of us are aware. I mean, 
lots of workplaces have OSHA posters and things like that. We know kind of vaguely that like, well, a long time ago, people used to work all day, but now we work eight hours. Um, and we just kind of take that knowledge for granted. Um, I'd heard Woody Guthrie's song, The Ludlow Massacre, uh, which is horrifying. Do recommend. Give it a listen. And those stories and these kind of pieces of information weren't really enough for me. Uh, so I wanted to do some research and really try to dig into the origins of this story. Uh, the, the true origins of the labor movement in America, of course, go back to pretty much the, the start of the country, honestly. Uh, so I had to pick somewhere to begin. Um, I don't want to reveal the subject of this series until we get there in my script, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, pick a place and really try to dig in and do my research on the movement. Um, I know I'm going to miss a lot of other cool entry points and opportunities, uh, like the women at the Lowell, Massachusetts uh, textile mills and things like that, but I was trying to kind of get closer to the Ludlow Massacre side of the timeline, um, because my god, if we if we started all the way back then, I would be doing this series forever. And I don't know if Jeff has that patience. So without further ado, here we go. Uriah Stevens sat in a warmly lit hall off 4th Street near Callowell in Philadelphia. Around him were gathered his peers, garment cutters and tailors from across the city. There would have been some small talk, perhaps, but many would have simply been waiting quietly to begin. The scene would have been familiar to Stevens, who spent many of his evenings attending the meetings of his local Freemason, Oddfellow, and Knights of Pythias Lodges. But here, tonight, the gravity in the room did not come from the observance of ceremony, but from a pervasive, shared disappointment. And although it was Thanksgiving night of 1869, the men in that room had very little that they felt grateful for. After six and a half years of struggle, this assembly of independent craftsmen were meeting to disband their union. The first evidence of an association of garment cutters in Philadelphia emerged in 1850, and they had a difficult reception from the outset. There had been, for decades, a hostile sentiment toward fraternal orders. Fear and suspicion of Freemasonry in the United States is by now a time-honored tradition, <laughs> um, a fact which was celebrated at the 1830 Anti-Masonic Convention in Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> in which Mr. Thatcher proudly reports that anti-Masonry has been in existence for more than 30 years. Yeah. The convention, however, makes one thing very clear. Their concern was not solely with Freemasonry. It was with all secret societies. And I quote, again from the Proceedings of the 1830 Anti-Masonic Convention, Beware of secret societies as dangerous to the liberties of the people. All that has been said against Freemasonry will apply to a certain extent to all secret societies. And... The great object of this convention is to eradicate the evils of Freemasonry and all other secret societies. It is easy to understand, then, why working-class movements in the United States had been stunted leading up to 1869. While Robert Owen perfected his communal reform at New Lanark by providing childcare, healthcare, education, and an eight-hour workday for his workers... 
and while England subsequently experienced 20 years of Chartist, working-class agitation, America enjoyed anti-Masonic sentiment and Commonwealth v. Polis, an 1806 Philadelphia court case which established a precedent until 1842 that going on strike constituted illegal conspiracy. <laughs> Specifically, a combination and conspiracy to raise wages. So the public's deep and abiding suspicion of secret societies easily extended to groups of workers who, say, met privately to discuss and protect their common interest. Uh, you know, they often had to meet privately to prevent themselves from being blacklisted as agitators. Um, but regardless of this, people still kind of uh, put the specter of secret societies and conspiracy over them. Uh, it is perhaps because of this that in 1850, when the garment cutters of Philadelphia first announced a meeting in the public ledger, uh, the newspaper in Philadelphia, they led with this, quote, the Association of Garment Cutters make known to the public and to the trade that they are not, as some suppose, a secret order, and that they are bound by no laws or regulations that will compromise or in the least infringe upon the rights of others. In other words, they are neither secretive nor do they swear mysterious oaths like some of those other weirdos. They go on to describe that their chief goals were to create capital and gather together the finest people in the craft that by a union of knowledge they could collectively position themselves for employment by partnering with, quote, men of wealth and known business qualifications. Uh, it's worth noting here, um, because I think our perceptions might kind of shade how we look at early labor movement. Um, it's worth noting that labor organizations are not always purely antagonistic towards capitalism. Some efforts, like we see here, uh, only seek to provide greater participation in the capitalist system for the workers whose effort generated further capital. Um, in their own words, uh, the garment cutters sought a partnership which, quote, the labor they perform will be so far respected as to bear some proportion with or be acknowledged equal to capital. The announcement concludes with this remark. Viewing with distrust the successful and rapid strides of capital in the monopoly of their trade, they, the garment cutters, are determined to use every honorable means to avail themselves of its, capital's, benefits, believing that there are no men better qualified to carry business to a successful issue than those to whom the business legitimately belongs. In other words, stay in your lane money bags and let the actual work be done by people who know what they're doing. <clears throat> so, you know, they did their best to assuage the fears of the Philadelphian populace, but progress was slow. It would be another twelve and a half years before the Garment Cutters Association of Philadelphia was formally incorporated by the state senate. Uriah Stevens did not spend these intermittent years frivolously. While the association met in private homes and largely dropped off the public record, struggling to gain momentum, Stevens traveled. From 1853 to 1858, he visited Mexico, the West Indies, England, Germany, Belgium, and the goldfields of California. And his time abroad had an effect. On his return, he took a staunch abolitionist position in public life, supporting the newly formed Republican candidates of John Fremont and subsequently Abraham Lincoln. 
when Lincoln won the presidency, Stevens visited him in Washington and proposed that he, quote, confiscates the estates of the southern slaveholders and place them in the hands of the Negroes who were to be emancipated and clothed with the suffrage. Wow. Um, <laughs> and it was with this egalitarian fervor that in 1858, he returned to pull the Garment Cutters Association out of social obscurity and set them before the State House for incorporation by 1862. It was perfect timing. Uh, maybe you can see where this is going. As the American Civil War wound up, the glut of demand for uniforms and other clothing placed tailors and garment cutters at the fore of the home front. Uh, so much so, in fact, that they seemed to struggle with scab workers of a sort. Writing first in November of 1862, they declare their opposition to, quote, men obtaining contracts through the mere influence of money and who had not the remotest knowledge of the trade, and that, quote, it was also the intention of the association to interfere in the cases of persons setting themselves up as tailors who knew nothing of the theory of the trade, but worked only from patterns furnished by the brains of a regular tailor. <laughs> Later in December, they released a similar shorter notice that they, quote, object to blacksmiths, shoemakers, carpenters, and various other mechanics becoming tailors at our expense. Three months after that, uh, in March of 1863, the association released a scathing rebuke of the city's mechanics, and mechanics is, in this context is an oldie-timey term for any tradesperson. Uh, their rebuke occupied about a quarter of a column on the newspaper. Um, ordinarily, I would cut this and give you a more succinct view of what they said, but I think it's worth reading most of it for you. I think it really captures the fear and the desperation and the endlessness of working for a home front industry during a conflict that claimed hundreds of lives each day. Um, and it will become an important issue of Uriah Stevens' advocacy going forward. So, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, March 21st, 1863. <clears throat> Blacksmiths, carpenters, saddlers, umbrella makers, barbers, and a class of men who never learn trades have so far been enabled to monopolize the business of tailors. We would not find fault with these gentlemen, but would rather applaud them for their enterprise, foresight, and energy, if that energy and enterprise did not involve such fearful consequences. We intend, by a union, to unite our small means and offer our services to the government, well knowing that we have the necessary knowledge, and consequently the ability, to perform. We have learned our trades. We know the labor, the countless number of stitches each garment contains. We can sympathize with and feel most sensibly the wrongs inflicted on our brothers and sisters, the sewing men and women who are compelled to constantly toil men and women who labor all day and every day, many of whom are compelled to burn the midnight oil in order to keep soul and body together, and such is the necessity at times to even beg for leave to toil. Such is the present strife for government work, and so great the competition to obtain contracts, and such the necessities of the poor workmen, that a Mr. Blacksmith, after finding out the very lowest price for cutting and making any kind of garment, puts in his bid from five to ten percent lower, but a Mr. Carpenter or a Mr. Saddler is still a few cents below him. Of course, the lowest bidder is supposed to obtain the contract. But is the individual who secures the contract the loser by its lower offer? 
by no means it is ground out of the sweat and toil of the poor workmen by a reduction in the price of cutting and making and the contractor still makes his thousands uh, so the issue of government contracts would continue to plague Stevens throughout his career as a labor organizer and advocate. But despite the unsustainable competition inspired by the wartime economy, the Association of Garment Cutters persevered. Between the end of the war and their dissolution on Thanksgiving of 1869, uh, the union grew from the 70 men who incorporated it to an organization large enough to warrant an entirely separate branch of German-speaking cutters in the March of 68. But after several failed attempts to increase wages, and no major private clients coming forward to employ the union after the war, a vote was eventually cast to merge the association with the Taylor's International Trade Union, and a year later the vote was cast, dissolving the group in the form that it was founded. The Garment Cutters Association of Philadelphia lived on in some capacity, their meetings continuing to be announced in the local papers. But for Uriah Stevens and many others, it was the end of the line. In truth, Stevens had been dissatisfied with the progress of labor in Philadelphia and the nation for quite some time. The Civil War presented the association with the greatest opportunity of leverage that they were likely to receive, but scabs and a ruthlessly unregulated market prevented them from negotiating even livable wages for their members. Writing in a retrospective of Stevens' life, some workers from New York observe, It was not until 1869 that Stevens addressed himself to the labor problem proper. To this step, he was moved more particularly by the tailor Icarius, whose acquaintance Stevens made in London. Icarius was a member of the General Council of the International Working Men's Association, and he was in a habit of supplying Stevens with literature. Among the pamphlets sent to Stevens by Icarius was the Communist Manifesto issued by Marx and Engels. This work made a strong impression on Stevens. In later years, he admitted that he drew his plan of agitation and organization, and especially the philosophy upon which he reared his organization from that great socialistic work. His exposure to Icarius and the Christian socialist sentiment that often accompanied Chartism in the mid-1850s was likely a key contributing factor to his firebrand egalitarianism upon his return to the United States. As the Garment Cutters meeting finally adjourned, Stevens approached a number of his closest friends and colleagues, inviting them to his home on Coral Street. Here, he laid out a new vision, a new union of workers. Inspired by the efforts of the First International Abroad and of the National Labor Union, or NLU, in the United States, Stevens was also aware of their respective shortcomings, and so sought to build an organization that borrowed from their strengths and learned from their weaknesses. At that time, his most pressing concern was labor's continued adherence to, quote, pure and simple trade unionism, that is, the organization of individual unions according to their respective trades, you know, birds of a feather flocking together, that kind of thing. Uh, and he had felt the pitfalls of this firsthand when the Garment Cutters Association was continuously undermined by unqualified workers stepping in to perform underpaid labor. If the cutters went on strike, then the uh, machinists and blacksmiths stepped in at half the price. The only solution to this, as the NLU observed, was to unite the trades against the continuous downward pressure on wages by capital. Stevens' second greatest concern was that of publicity. 
He had seen that a public stance against secrecy had done little to help the garment cutter's public image or secure them any valuable clients. On the other hand, businessmen and capitalists formed associations of their own and coordinated efforts to undermine labor unions and keep wages low. This had been the case in 1806 with Commonwealth v. Polis, and it continued to be the case in 1869. Therefore, a public organization of workers, from the outset, set themselves up for failure by showing their hand to an opponent who already had an advantage. The answer to these concerns was simple. And there, on Thanksgiving night of 1869, Uriah Smith Stevens and six other men formed the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, which, what a dope name. Inspired by the Masons, the Odd Fellows, the Knights of Pythias, and the Brotherhood of the Union, the group would remain a secret and selective order. Terence Powderly, a future leader of the Knights, writes in his book, Thirty Years of Labor, uh, quote, it was that the organization and its members might be protected as the seed in early springtime that the veil of secrecy was first adopted. And the precaution was necessary. Protection was necessary, not only from employers, but from men who toiled for a living as well. They did not adopt the veil of secrecy to promote or shield wrongdoing, but to shield themselves from persecution and wrong. Stephen's immediate goal was not to organize a block of workers large enough to threaten capital and demand reform, but rather to educate and unify the working class in his city. Meetings involved discussions and lectures about labor relations and organization. According to Carol Wright, the first U.S. Commissioner of Labor, who incidentally owed that job to the Knights, identifies Stephen's core ideas as, quote, first, that the surplus of labor always keeps wages down, and second, that nothing can remedy this evil but a purely and deeply secret organization, based upon a plan that shall teach, or rather inculcate, organization, and at the same time educate its membership to one set of ideas ultimately subversive to the present wage system. After this first meeting of the newly formed Knights of Labor, the group would meet again on December 28th and establish its first local assembly. That's the most granular unit of organization within the Knights. Practices were developed to welcome probationary members called sojourners into the order, and although Assembly Number 1 was formed by garment cutters, sojourners could be of any trade, or none at all. Uh, one of the things that made the Knights of Labor so radical, especially, again, relative to the preceding tradition of trade unionism, is that they welcomed unskilled laborers. It's not just the master carpenters and the journeymen who have a say in things, it's literally everyone could come. Uh, once these sojourners had learned the rites and rituals necessary to call a meeting to order, found a new assembly, endow officers, and induct new members, they would leave the parent assembly to found ones of their own. It was a purely oral tradition. Uh, and again, Powderly here writes, Those who had been connected with number one as sojourners took leave of the parent assembly for the purposes of organizing. And so, by the end of 1870, the first full year of the Knights' operation, Stevens and his assembly had elected among themselves 113 different candidates and fully initiated 70 new members into the order. Two years later, on July 18th of 1872, assembly number two was organized uh, by carpenters and calkers from the Cramp Shipyard in Philadelphia. Just before Christmas of that year, 
Assembly number three was formed of shawl weavers, and the next year, 1873, the Knights saw a massive surge of growth. Benefiting from the collapse of the National Labor Union, the Knights of Labor formed over 80 new assemblies. Wow. Uh, bag makers, stonemasons, machinists and blacksmiths, boiler makers, sheet iron workers, uh, pattern makers and molders hailing from all across the country, from Kansas to Delaware, all stood together under the banner of the Knights of Labor. And the thing that held them together was a strict observation of ritual. Trades who once would cannibalize each other during times of hardship and steep competition, like the garment cutters during the war, uh, were suddenly bound by a common fraternal oath and veil of secrecy. It created an ideological bond among the working class, which up until that point didn't exist. You know, what reason did carpenters have to stand with exploited tailors as long as their own trade was well paid, you know? Why would they risk their own livelihood by going on strike out of solidarity uh, if they were comfortable? These questions, which had previously torn other organizing efforts apart, were answered by Stevens creating an organization that went beyond the economical. Striking at the heart of division and class conflict, the Knights of Labor would grow into an organization which represented people and not merely trades. And... For a time, in those early years, it seemed as if the slogan of the Knights of Labor may well become true, one that, uh, if you're at all familiar with labor history and the labor movement, you may recognize that an injury to one is the concern of all. You know, Zach, I think one of the things that I, out of this first episode, am, am really liking is the fact that I feel like the two of us have really unique approaches to both how we conduct our research, but also how we present it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's it's really fun to hear, you know, how how my brain put together this information and, and how it varies from the way that you put together yours. And I'm excited to be able to continue to find these fun and creative ways to present these really cool stories to our listeners. Yeah, man, I agree. I, I had a lot of fun. Um putting this together once I kind of got over the hump of how to start you know it's always the hardest part oh my god <laughs> so part. rough <laughs> but um so we we want to uh extend a sincere thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in for our very first episode Woo! please continue to tune in um as usual uh as we said in our our episode zero if you have ideas things that you think we should check out please hit us up at fitblankshistory at gmail.com additionally um we both acknowledge that we are human beings we may make mistakes if you notice any mistakes in our research please shoot us an email um and if you know some other sources we should check out we'd be happy to check that out um and address that in future episodes yeah yeah no we i would love to be shown something new and something interesting so once again thank you very much and we are going to uh clank here to a successful first episode cheers amigo have a good night y'all or day or afternoon have a good day y'all Oh, hey, everyone. Post-production Zach here again. Um, I just wanted to uh, let you know and apologize for the uh, kind of weird audio quality that I'm sure everybody noticed. Um, I was an idiot and left my microphone at home. 
Um, ordinarily, that wouldn't be a problem, but Jeff and I live about 30 or 40 minutes, depending on traffic, uh, away from each other. Um, and the prospect of adding another hour to my trip wasn't tremendously enticing, so we were trying to kind of negotiate the use of a single microphone. I apologize for that. Uh, it will not happen in the future, but I just wanted to let you know kind of what was going on there. Thanks. I feel like I need a pickle. Really? Yeah. Do those help? I like a palate cleanser.